Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Emily Spell heard the screams from outside her parents' red brick home. She found her brother, Joseph Williams, 31, splayed on a mattress in the basement. His eyes, half open, were yellow. His lips were blue. His wife, Christina, was pounding on his chest. Joe, wake up! Joe, wake up! Christina hollered. Spell, a nursing student, started CPR. Each time she pressed down on his chest, white foam spluttered from Joe's mouth and onto his favourite Batman pyjamas. Joe's mother, who'd raced home from work at Piggly Wiggly, a regional grocery store in Garland, North Carolina, tore into the room. She lay down beside her only son. It's okay, baby. You can go ahead and sleep, Susan Williams said. Do you want a cigarette? Are you cold? I thought my mama had lost her mind, Emily remembers. Of course he was cold, because he was dead. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at The Times. Today's topic, international investigative reporting. A recent investigation by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists is headlined, Unchecked by Global Banks, Dirty Cash Destroys Dreams and Lives. It's a great story from our buddy, Will Fitzgibbon. Will and his colleagues do incredibly ambitious work, unraveling complicated issues from across the globe. And Will also tries to weave narrative into those deep dives whenever possible, which is why we love him. He's with us today. So thanks for joining us, Will. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. So first, um, we thought you could tell people a little bit about your background and how you got involved with this kind of work. Yeah, of course. Well, uh, as my accent will tell you, I'm not from here. I'm Australian and moved to D.C. in 2016. Uh, Before that, I'd worked a bit and studied in London and Paris, and came to journalism actually only after having studied classical music, because who doesn't want to be an orchestral bassoon player, and then getting a law degree in Australia. Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting path. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, here I am. Was, was ICIJ your first reporting job? My first ever reporting job was as an intern in Ukraine, because the best advice I ever received for throwing myself into journalism after having not had a traditional, I suppose, educational trajectory was all you've got is your free labor. So I just took myself off somewhere, threw some words down on a page and hoped that editors liked it. And they did. And then I liked it more and more and then applied for a job, convinced an editor in London that my law degree made me a little bit special and uh, have never looked back. And the bassoon hasn't helped so much in journalism, though. Well, I like to think that my appreciation of rhythm sometimes comes out in some of my writing. 
There you go. I'll let everyone else be the judge of that. So for those who aren't familiar with ICIJ, can you talk a little bit about the history and kind of how it works all over the globe? ICIJ is a uh, non-profit organization based in Washington, D.C. I'll address the elephant in the room, which is why do we have such a ridiculously long name? And I think everyone can agree with that, that the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists is a mouthful uh, and not always the easiest way to get people to open up to you as a reporter. But ICIJ has been around for about 30 years. It was initially a project of the Centre for Public Integrity, which some of your listeners might know as a very good investigative outlet in Washington as well. And ICIJ spun off and became independent for reasons related really to and after the Panama Papers investigation, which is probably what ICIJ is best known for. Um, What we do is special and unique, and I love it. We're both a newsroom, so we write stories, we edit stories, we fact-check stories, but we're also a collaborative hub. That means we don't write one-off individual stories. All of our work centers around these long, complicated 12-month, 16-month investigation. So I'm both a reporter, for example, but I also coordinate journalists from Africa and the Middle East each time that ICAJ launches a new investigation like the Panama Papers or like the FinCEN files. When it comes to funding, we get a lot of our money, like many nonprofits do, through some of the big names, Open Society, the Ford Foundation, and the Logan Foundation. But we are increasingly also trying to get small donations and uh, if you ever want to have something in common with Meryl Streep or Barbara Streisand, you can donate to ICIJ as well. How, how does that work in coordinating journalists around the globe with different languages, different laws, different interests? How, how do you do that? With lots of trial and error and with lots of patience. Uh, you know, co- uh, collaborating, say the FinCEN files, is not something that happens overnight. You can't just flick a switch and have 400 reporters decide to work together in peaceful harmony all of a sudden. Uh, I think one of the reasons it works is we've done this for a few years now. So there are more and more journalists out there who understand that they can tell better stories and they can have greater public impact if they combine forces. You know, long gone are the days, I think, where, quote unquote, the best investigative journalists are kind of angry people sitting in the back of a smoke-filled room with a, you know, a poker visor on their head or something like that. Um, and it also takes tools and communication. So ICOJ has a platform that we use where all of the reporters are members. It's a bit like a Facebook group. And on that platform, we communicate, hey, here's an interesting angle I found, or wow, I just did this interview with a really interesting source at the Department of Justice. Here are my notes. And also important things like the date we decide to publish, um, when and who is going to write questions to the subject of our investigation. So everything is really organized at a pretty minute level while maintaining editorial independence. So ICIJ has no editorial control over, over the other news organizations. When we work with the Miami Herald, the New York Times, the Guardian, the BBC, and all kinds of small organizations, Everyone still decides what they write and how they write it for their local country and audience. ICOJ just uh, gives a bit of an organizational push and shove every now and again. What do you like most about this kind of work? I think what I really like are those moments of accountability when I call on the phone or when I write an email 
to a powerful person, to a politician, or a really profitable company, and I say to them, hey, I've got something that you never thought or you never wanted anyone to see, and here are my questions, and you really need to answer. I love those moments of accountability, um, and I like those feelings, even though it doesn't always lead to change. You know, people often ask investigative journalists, or they think that somehow it's a failure if there's not immediate resignations or reform overnight. And sometimes that does happen. But my philosophy also is, if someone or something has done something bad, if I can make them sleep just a little less comfortably at night, knowing that a nagging journalist is on their tail, then I've also done my job. That's a great measurement. Make people uncomfortable. Make the, the, um, the comfortable people uncomfortable. Yeah. Definitely. Who, who do you all see as the audience for your stories? Or who is the audience for your stories? ICRJ's strange for a number of reasons. Audience is also one of them because although we're a US-based organization, and there are a whole bunch of reasons for that, including strong freedom of the press protections here. ICRJ's audience is very international. So this story that I wrote for the FinCEN files, it certainly has a US opening, but it also touches Senegal. It goes to Turkmenistan in Central Asia. It talks about parts of Latin America. And that's because our audience is very international and the journalists we work with are very international. One of the other facets of ICRJ's model is because we're not a publication destination, you know, as much as I'd love for people to say, I visit ICRJ.org every day, that's not what people do. And that's not really what we're looking for. We offer our story. So my story as a free fact-checked, legally vetted and edited story to all of the journalists who work on our projects. So that means that the story that we're talking about today was on the front page of newspapers in Argentina in Senegal, in South Korea, uh, in Australia, and in Cameroon, for example, because journalists from all of those countries were working on this project, and those reporters can take bits and pieces from what I wrote, as it suits their local uh, audience. That's pretty cool. Be nice to collect all those different languages and all those front pages somewhere, you know. So, um, so talk about this project. There were so many threads, and I just I can't even begin to think about like how did it begin? How did it evolve? How did you guys start to tie all this together? So the FinCEN files started with a bunch of leaked documents that BuzzFeed News had obtained. Uh, BuzzFeed News then had what I think is the very cool and humble idea of saying, not only can one newsroom alone not do all of this work, but also there are so many important stories that we as a, new, a US organization, BuzzFeed News, won't be able to tell. And I really love that about ICRJ. It's about saying that just because I'm a good American reporter doesn't mean I can find all the leads here and all the good stories. So BuzzFeed News shared these leaked documents with us, and then ICRJ went about assembling this team of 400 reporters. Um, but that's really only the starting point. You know, nothing makes me cringe more than when I hear people refer to ICRJ's investigations as data dumps, uh, which often happens and we have a bit of a reputation for that. But as I think we all know, leaked documents form the basis of nearly every investigative report. You think of the Donald Trump taxes story, you know, that's leaked information too. But they're always the starting point, not the end point. And something that I really enjoyed about this project and about this story 
was taking sometimes, you know, six words or 10 words in one leaked file and then doing hours and hours of research in court documents, in corporate registries, in interviews, and connecting these leaked documents, which are often very technical, to a family like the one I met in North Carolina. So 400 reporters over 90 countries. I mean, like, I think about getting six reporters in the same room to try to work together is really uh, sometimes very difficult. (laughs) So, I mean, I know you were talking about how you guys communicate and this and that, but... Um, and, and you, you've gotten better at this, I presume over time, you know, how to, how to work this out, but that just seems like this crazy logistical challenge. That's, I don't know. I don't even, it's, I don't know. Is it, are Lane, can you wrap your hand around that? I'm trying to wrap my head around that. And I also don't understand like how you take a topic as big as like international money laundering and then bring it down to one family in North Carolina, like the threads you pulled apart to make this human were impressive as could be. Yeah, it took a lot of, um, I mean, like I always think with journalism or investigative journalism, thankfully no one sees all of the work that you do that doesn't make it on the page, all of the leads that you track down that don't pan out, all of the excitement that you have about one story in April, which, you know, disappears by May, for example. Um, And I think what's cool about these collaborations is every country has their own interests. You know, journalists get excited about different things. So a story that resonates in America won't necessarily resonate in South Africa, for example. And one reason collaborations work is that every journalist still likes getting a cool story. So journalists are generally pretty willing to sacrifice a bit of control if it means they can have access to some cool, super confidential uh, documents, which is kind of what we did in the Finson files here. And then For ICIJ, because we knew we were talking about a systemic issue, and one of the other big stories of the FinCEN files was a global broad look at how basically banking regulation failed and anti-money laundering regulation failed. But let's be honest, that's not the kind of story necessarily that I'm going to lead with at a bar with my friends or telling my grandma, you know, over uh, pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving, for example. So we really wanted to also approach the FinCEN files by showing people, not just telling people, hey, this is something that does actually touch your life. And if you've ever known someone who's had a brother or a family member who's died of a drug overdose, if you've ever known someone who's been a victim of an online dating scam online, then money laundering actually plays a central role in that. So... Yeah, I wanted us to move to that whole idea of you take all this enormous amount of information, like you said, you don't, people aren't, you know, it's not sexy, banking, banking is not a sexy topic, but then you're trying to bring it down. Um, why, why, were you, why are you so drawn to narrative work? Because, you know, we met Will because he's, he's that's, that's where some of his passion lies, even though he is working on these big, humongous projects that have all this dense information. What, what draws you to the narrative part of it? draws me to the narrative part of it is I suppose twofold one is selfish like we want people to read these stories and let's be perfectly honest if all I'm doing is writing how a rich guy used a company in Panama and a company in the British Virgin Islands and a company in Delaware and a company in Barbados then how on earth am I going to expect 
more than my mum and my dad to finish reading that story. And then again, it's only because they have to. And because we've done this so often now, so we started not only with the Panama Papers, but years before telling these kind of complex financial crime stories, I see it in the eyes of my friends when I talk to them, let alone judges on awards panels, you know. Here we go, ICOJ with another international dodgy finance kind of story. And I think that's a real shame because these issues aren't going away. You know, criminals are still winning the game. Uh, drug traffickers, you know, human traffickers, arms dealers are still running rings around judges and prosecutors and police around the world because these systemic failings in our systems still exist. So it's not that the story's gone away, and I think journalists, at least this is my impression, I want to do a better and better job each time that I can to remind people of why it matters. And I think storytelling is really the, for me, the primary way that I can hope to do that. How do you... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Report differently for storytelling or for narrative elements than you do for investigations. I was thinking about that question. It's really interesting. Uh, I think, in some ways or in many ways, there's lots of overlap for both narrative and investigative reporting. What you're doing is trying to get as much information as possible. You know, in this case, I want to know what the victim of the drug overdose was wearing when he died, what position he was in, how many metres from the house with was his mum when she ran from Piggly Wiggly, all these really minute details. And the same is for investigative reporting. You know, in order to back up what you're saying, and so that you don't get sued, because in investigative reporting, my theory is you should always be saying something that the subject of your investigation is not going to like. In order to make those claims, you have to be really sure about what you're reporting on. You know, did the drug trafficker pay $102 for this fentanyl, or did he pay $102.50 and 50 cents for this fentanyl? So you're hoovering up as much information as you can, I think, both when it comes to narrative and investigative elements. I think what changes sometimes is how you present that information. Um, you know, something I really enjoyed in this story was or were the few paragraphs that I had where I was able to not be lyrical, but to play a little more with rhythm, you know, to explore um, what I wanted the opening to feel like and to sound like. So when I talked about uh, Joe Williams's uh, lips being blue or his eyes being yellow, for example, I must have gone through 10 or 20 versions of writing just those short factual sentences, playing with where the comma would be, what tense it would be in, where the adjective appeared. And that might sound small, and I guess it is, but at the same time, I was thinking to myself, I've got to get the reader hooked on this as soon as possible. And 
when you're doing an investigation, you don't have much time to to focus on narrative. I could sense the editors breathing down my neck, you know, wanting me to get to the point of the story as soon as possible, right? And that means that the few sentences or paragraphs of narrative that we have in an, in an investigation have to be as potent as possible. So how did you find this family in North Carolina? The, the name appears somewhere on a document? Yeah. yeah, we found this family kind of through um, reverse engineering. The leaked financial documents that we had included a few references to the names of about four drug traffickers who've since been sentenced to jail as part of this big fentanyl ring that the US government had led. So we had some of the names of the alleged criminals. Then I went to the court documents and on page seven, I think of a 30 page official filing by the US prosecutors. I saw this reference to JW in Garland, North Carolina, who died in uh, 2014. Um, and because that was the first listed fatality in this very sad story of fentanyl overdoses, I kind of thought, well, wouldn't it be a good way to start with patient zero, so to speak, the first victim of this tragedy? Um, luckily, Garland, North Carolina has only about 600 people who live in there. So uh, using a bit of online sleuthing and I think it's legacy.com, this obituary website, I was able to confirm that JW was probably Joseph Williams, who died around the same time that the US government said he did. Didn't help that the US government's own court filings were a bit dodgy sometimes. They got it wrong once and called him James Williams instead, which kind of sent me freaking out because I'd spent all this time thinking it was a Joe Williams and all of a sudden there's this James Williams. But they confirmed to me later that they'd got it wrong. Um, and then once I was sure it was him, it was a matter of very cautiously and tactfully approaching the family and seeing if they'd speak to us, um, which we initially reached out with through Facebook, um, had a phone call, you know, and, and doing what I think Lane and you, Maria, taught me so well during that session, which is, you know, how to present yourself as just another human being, even though you've got journalist or reporter in your title, what you really want to do is just be invited into someone's story. Um, and I always use what Lane told me, which is don't refer to yourself as a reporter, just call yourself a writer. That's good advice. So were they, were they shocked to, to kind of, as you explained how you were connecting all these dots? Would that, was that like something that I mean, I would imagine they wouldn't have thought for a minute that there were <laughs> their son was going to end up in this story with tentacles all over the world. There definitely was a jaw on the floor moment with the family. Uh, one, when I spoke to the sister on the phone, and then two, when I went to visit them in person. Because, of course, they're experiencing this as an intensely private tragedy. Uh, this was a, an overdose or a fatality that not even the entire town of Garland was aware of. And there comes this tall, lanky Australian uh, from out of town, all of a sudden talking about China, talking about anti-money laundering regulations, you know, talking about obscure parts of the US criminal code, for example. Um, so there was a bit of shock at the beginning, for sure. But, uh, you know, they had been in touch with the US Department of Justice as part of the case. So They'd been alerted to the fact that some of the fentanyl in the first case had come from China. So they were aware of that international angle. 
I think what I loved was the value of my reporting in showing that you know, drug trafficking is not a disembodied action, if you see what I mean. It's not just a drug, quote unquote, that moves from one place to another and kills something, someone. It involves people. At every stage of this traffic, someone is doing something. And my focus was on showing that banks and financial institutions were playing a part in that trafficking too, which hadn't really been explored up until then. Was it hard to talk them into sharing their story? I mean, you got such amazingly intimate details down to the Batman pajamas, which I, I loved that. I thought that was such a, a telling detail you found there. How, how hard was it to convince them not only to share their story, but let you come to their home? I was really surprised and humbled, Lane, by how easy it was, actually. Uh, even though they hadn't spoken about it publicly before, the victim's uh, sister and mother were very welcoming to me, despite the obvious raw emotion uh, five or six years later. So the first conversation I had with Emily over the phone was the one in which the Batman pyjamas came up. In fact, Emily's spell was really a reporter's dream in that she stopped herself and said to me, Hey, Will, I know I'm going into lots of detail. Let me know if it's too much, which is... That is a reporter's dream. <laughs> really is. Um, she's also a nurse as well, so having someone maybe with that clinical approach or training was quite valuable. And, and what kind of reaction um, did you get for the story, both from the families you wrote about and from the international community? Well, the first thing I did when the story was published was send a link uh, of the story in a text message to Emily, who'd spoken to me, and my heart stopped racing like crazy as soon as she replied to me and said, got it, thank you, wow, uh, you know, thanks for coming and speaking to us. So I was really relieved by that. Um, I've got, we've gotten, and I've gotten lots of good feedback from that story for the reasons we were talking about, the fact that some people said, ah, finally, I understand why I should care about this. You know, I understand why you do your job now and why sometimes you only seem to talk about your work, you know, this is what some of my friends tell me. Um, you know, this is a story that's not immediately going to lead to overnight reforms. What we're pointing out here are systemic weaknesses or flaws um, in governmental systems, you know, in laws that are enforced probably too weakly or poorly by the US government, by governments around the world. Although I did see last week that the US Treasury announced they want to introduce this new rule uh, to reduce the amount of money or the value that banks would have to report as suspicious uh, to a small amount. And in that very document, the Department of Treasury actually mentioned fentanyl trafficking as one of the reasons why uh, it was important to, to tighten this law. Well, that's pretty huge to get them to pay attention uh, like that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, as you would know, governments rarely say that journalists are the reasons why they do anything, but uh, sometimes we just have to read the tea leaves. Um, well, we will, uh, of course, have a link on our uh, podcast page to this story. Um, if you have a question for Will or for Lane, or you want to suggest a podcast topic, find us on our Facebook group or email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Ayana Ishmael. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.